This is Archive Atlanta, episode 145, Orphanages. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So in the three years I've been doing this podcast, I have come across mentions of orphanages all the time, and many that were well-known and well-shared, like the Carrie Steele Pitts home or the Hebrew Orphans home, um, and then a lot of them that I just discovered even last month. So I decided it would be a great topic to cover the earliest orphanages in Atlanta in a very brief way, who formed them, who funded them, where they were, and what they are today. And that was one of the wildest parts of this research is that almost every single one of these institutions exists today in a different name or different form, but like they're still doing the same work. And I found that just incredible. Let's begin with a question that I had, which was what is up with all these Victorian era orphanages? Like every Dickens novel has an orphan in it. It's portrayed as like a dark and depressing place. And so what I learned is that Britain and the Industrial Revolution have a large part to play in the expansion of orphanages. As both men and women started to work in factories and industry, abandoned children became a huge issue in English urban cities, especially London. Workhouses came about in 1834, and those were crude attempts at housing people who could not afford to house themselves in exchange for their labor. And these are what Dickens was describing in those novels. The conditions were so horrible that middle-class social reformers fought for change, and that change would be the birth of the orphanage movement. In England, the orphan working home was first established in 1758, and the Bristol Asylum for Poor Girls in 1795. In the United States, the first orphanage, I think it was Mississippi, and it had something to do with like a, a Native American battle. And I'm terrible, I can't remember this. Um, the second orphanage was opened in 1737, and the first private orphanage was opened in New York City in 1806. Now in Georgia, the Bethesda Orphan House opened near Savannah in 1740. It turns out that our early colony had a really good number of orphan children, and so Oglethorpe formed like a three-man committee that would care for them and formed this orphanage. The Civil War compounded this issue even more. At the war's end, there were 50,000 children without a father and 10,000 that lost both parents. And this is a great time to bring up the differences in our modern definition of orphan, versus that from 150 years ago. So I think we can all agree that if somebody came up to you today and was like, hey, how do you define an orphan? You would say that is a child who has lost both of their parents. But in the past, a woman's strict gender role was to care for children. And so there's there's no like working mom. So when a father died and a mother was forced to work, her children were sent to orphanages if there was no family to help. There's, it's also the time to bring up terminology. So many of these children in these early orphanages were called inmates. Um, I, I did not use the term here. It was just, it's, I think, confusing for us in the modern age, but just so that you're aware, that's that's what they were called. In 1866, Georgia had the idea to institute a state lottery, which had been illegal before the war. The state legislature passed an act allowing a group of men and women to create a scheme to fundraise for an orphanage. The structure was to be named the Masonic Orphans Home, and the Georgia State Lottery funded construction of a brick building at the corner of Walton and Forsyth Streets, which is today where the Grant Building is. 
1867, the Orphans Free School opened on the second floor of the lottery building. And this was not exactly the original plan. So the Masons actually pulled out of the project amid um, some drama. And then the lottery kind of focused itself on education. By 1876, uh, stuff hit the fan and charges of corruption highlighted that little money was actually going to the school, which by this time was only serving about 20 children. Um, Another outrage was that the orphans helped to turn the wheels and select the numbers for the lottery drawings, which was seen as demoralizing and a bad influence. Finally, in 1877, the Georgia legislator made lotteries illegal, and in 1883, the building was repossessed for back taxes and sold. Georgia's Baptist opened an orphan home in downtown Atlanta in 1872. The first discussions began a year prior inside First Baptist Church. And by 1874, they had celebrated their first anniversary party at their home on Petrie Street. And it was considered quite the success that they remained solvent while being so far up Petrie without a train that stopped nearby. Um, It's said that Collier gave them some land or it was near Collier's land. So this puts it at kind of right when Midtown transitions into Buckhead. This early group of Baptists would formally incorporate in 1888 as the Georgia Baptist Asylum for Orphaned Children. The first officers were all women and the organization was non-sectarian and planned to accept children from every religious denomination. Jonathan Norcross, which is one of Atlanta's earliest settlers, deeded them 20 acres of land, quote-unquote, just beyond the western limits. So I'm not quite positive what happened with that land or with that location, but by 1892, they had an orphanage on Washington Street that housed 35 children. In 1899, they opened a campus in Hapeville. And in the 1940s, they changed their name to the Georgia Baptist Children's Home. And then in 1956, they kind of incorporated another um, orphan's home, which was called Pine Mountain Orphan's Home. In 1968, this entire Hapeville campus moved to Palmetto, Georgia, but the crazy thing is that's where they're still existing today. The story of Carrie Steele is one of my favorites, um, especially my friend Walt that volunteers at Oakland, but she is buried at Oakland Cemetery, so, you know, the story is often told sometimes at their tours um, or their special events. But her life story begins around 1829 when she is born into slavery. After emancipation, she gets a job as a stewardess, matron, janitress. Basically, I mean, there's very different names for, you know, a maid or a janitor. And it's been described in many ways. Um, But she worked at the Macon train depot, I think, for 16 years. Then after that, she came to Atlanta and she worked at the Union Depot for the next 20 years. And when she was working here in Atlanta, she was astounded at the amount of African-American orphans that she would just seen wandering around the train station every day. So she asked the railroad for permission to take them and kind of keep them in an unused boxcar during her shift. And then when she clocked out, she would take them to her home on Auburn Avenue. So by 1887, she was either already retired or about to retire. And she was working on forming and building an official orphanage for Atlanta's black children. And she knew what she was doing. So for a black woman in the 1880s South to have the support of every single leading white man in Atlanta, that was not an easy feat. Now, a lot of her marketing, you know, she portrayed this as I want an orphanage as a place to train black children to work in the service of white people. And these are exactly her words. So I wonder, you know, how much of this is just her savvy knowing that this is how to get support and money You know, how much of this is just what she believed because of the time she was born? We'll never know. 
But either way, in 1889, the Cary Steele Orphans Home was officially established. The city donated land, and by the following year, a small cottage and a stable stood on Fair Street, which is today Memorial, very close to Oakland Cemetery. It housed nine orphan children. By 1891, the permanent building designed by Bruce and Morgan was almost complete. It was just missing a roof. And the money stories start early here. They She had run out of money at this point or fundraising. It had no roof. The home had 22 kids. They were six months old to nine years old. But she was a fundraising queen and she worked tirelessly to care for them. She raised the funds. And so by the next year, the building is formally finished and dedicated and home to 36 kids. That number of children would grow every year. By 1894, there's 57 of them. Sadly, Carrie died in 1900 after suffering a stroke months prior. Her funeral was held at Big Bethel, and she was buried at Oakland, like I said earlier. Operation of the orphanage was deeded to her husband, and unfortunately, the home would struggle for the first few decades of the new century. There were repairs, um, there was funding issues, there was just, there's just a lot of needs that had to be met. Um, Now, the good part is that those were all taken care of, and then there was a woman named Clara Maxwell Pitts who became the orphanage director in 1909. So she served through 1950, and during her term, she would see the orphanage move from a memorial or fair to the Pittsburgh neighborhood in 1928. Since its inception, the Cary Steel Home has housed more than 20,000 black children. In 1963, they moved to a 23-acre site in northwest Atlanta, and they renamed it to honor um, both women, and so it is called the Cary Steel Pitts Home to honor Clara as well. A lesser-known African-American orphanage was formed in 1890, so I came across this on a Sanborn map when I was doing research for the Fort McPherson episode. And I just remember being like, well, I have never heard of this place. Um, but the Leonard Street Orphanage was founded by Lucetta Lawson and Sarah Grant just on the edges of Spelman's campus um, on Leonard Street at a time when only 45% of Black families in Atlanta earned above the poverty line, which at that time was $500. Now, this differed from Carrie's facility. This was a girls-only facility. It was much smaller. In 1907, um, there was a Mrs. Robinson in Atlanta that began to take orphan children into her home. And so in 1915, she incorporated as the Atlanta Child's Home. So it's a little confusing, but at some point, this Leonard Street Orphanage um, and the Child's Home would merge together into an association called the Child Welfare Association. And that became an agency that worked with other orphanages in Fulton and DeKalb counties. Um, in 1937, it became the first licensed adoption agency in the state of Georgia. In 1964, it opened the first group home. And it is something that still operates today. In 1892, Samuel Inman, extremely wealthy cotton merchant and Inman Park namesake, donated his mansion at the corner of Mitchell and Forsyth Streets, for the purpose of forming an orphanage. The Ladies' Aid Society was a group of women in the First Presbyterian Church. What he decided to do was he was going to rent this house to them free of charge for a period of 10 years, and he also promised an annual donation of $2,500 to cover the maintenance. But he had stipulations, and so the stipulations are that the women he names are on the board, um, they're all his late wife's dear friends, and they alone control the decisions. Whatever they want to do, they can do. The orphanage would only be open to white children. 
It also had to maintain a sufficient number of children in its care. And I can't remember what this is, but it was pretty high. It was like 30 or 40 children. And if they did not maintain this number, the property would revert back to him or one of his heirs. So these women, and they include like Mrs. Adair and Mrs. Richard Peters, really big names, they each represent different churches and different denominations throughout the city. And they name their enterprise the Jenny D. Inman Orphanage after Samuel Inman's late wife. One month later, it was opened for the first four children. By 1896, they had dealt with a really bad, severe measles outbreak, so they actually purchased their own lot at Westview Cemetery. Um, But sadly, the Jenny D. Inman Orphanage was only open for four years. They could not keep the number of children that was required in the stipulations. I don't think they ever had more than like 10. Um, And so they had issues with funding. And so Samuel Inman, he's still alive at this point. He agrees to support the remaining children that were left when they closed. He got control of the property. And then in 1899, he ended up selling the house to be demolished for new development. The home for the friendless was officially formed in 1888 with the first meeting in the basement of the YMCA. The original 30 members, all women, decided that this home would again be non-denominational and they would house women and children. It was first located on Magnum Street, which is right there in Castleberry Hill, and then they and then soon thereafter they moved to the corner of Peter Street and Fair Streets, again, M- Memorial Drive. By the end of the year, membership grew to over 100, and so what they did for funding is they had a $3 yearly due Um, that went to covering the cost of the building. And they also had donations as well. Just a year later, they are housing more than 20 babies. Only five of them are true orphans. This goes back to what I said in the beginning. Um, Most of these children were not in here because both parents died. I think in this case here, there was women that had been arrested or institutionalized. In 1890, they combined with another Atlanta um, thing called the Industrial School. And then two years later, they commissioned W.T. Downing to design an orphanage that was going to be built on the corner of Highland Avenue and Randolph Streets. Eventually, this home for the friendless became exclusively for school-age children. It's like a true orphanage. And then later involvement by the Kiwanis Club in the 1920s brought the whole thing up to national standards because the way that we cared for our orphans, the way that we even spoke about them, you know, has changed throughout the years. In 1926, eight acres of land on Courtney Drive in Morningside were purchased, and so the home was renamed Hillside Cottages. So today, this is also still in existence. It's just called Hillside, um, but it's still in the same street in Morningside. Last but not least is the Hebrew Orphans Home. This organization differs from every other one I've mentioned. It's really interesting because the initial funding and the efforts did not start from like a local Atlanta grassroots thing or from a woman or a group of women. Instead, it began in 1887 when the Bene Berith, um, and I hope I said that right, was exploring a new place to locate a Jewish orphanage in the 5th District. So I think the 5th District was like most of the Southeast. Before this, an orphan from the Jewish community in Atlanta was being sent to Baltimore. So local leaders, especially Joseph Hirsch, who had a lot to do with Grady Hospital actually, knew that Atlanta would be the perfect place. And so one of the reps 
visits the city. They give him a big tour of all the available sites. And by 1888, a tract of land known as Ormond's Grove was selected on Washington Street. G.L. Norman was selected as the architect, and the community began to hold fairs and fundraisers, just like the other orphanages did. Construction began in that same year. There was one big hiccup. So they put up like a newly bricked, really big tower, and it collapsed on itself and into the building. Miraculously, all the crews like made it out of the way. Um, the architect Norman, he's like in the paper blasting the builder for not anchoring it the way he detailed in the plans. They got over this. Um, the completed building was finally dedicated in 1889, and it was called the Hebrew Orphans Asylum. And this kind of goes back to the inmate thing with 13 children in its care. The campus had a playground with a merry-go-round. There was a huge green space. It was also kind of used like a community center. There are historical photos online of this building. It's absolutely stunning. It's one of those things you, you wish it was still here to see. And the parent organization was really happy with how it was run. So each report would come through. I think they raised the annual allotment at the turn of the century. In 1901, the name changed to the Hebrew Orphans Home. And in the 1930s, it became the Jewish Children's Services, which was an adoption and foster agency. Now, this was an operation until 1989. And then it became the Jewish Educational Loan Fund which still exists today. It's an organization that provides interest-free loans to Jewish college students in the Southeast. Back to the Hebrew Orphans Home. Um, it is where basically I-20 and the connector are. Um, there's a neighborhood there, Washington Rawson, that was completely wiped away by urban renewal. Probably another podcast episode for another day. Um, but like I said, you can Google the photos and see it. So there you have it. The brief history of some of Atlanta's earliest orphanages. Before you type that angry email, I know there are some that I miss, especially the Methodist Children's Home in Decatur. I do hope to cover those in the future, so promise. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to the podcast. There's also a Patreon link in the show notes where you can support it. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.